this morning. So John chapter this morning. See this morning. So John chapter 18, verses 1 through 18 is what we're going to study. Your hand, Pastor John, will slip you a Bible, and we're going to continue as we're getting close to ending our study in John's gospel. As we're going to see, Jesus is going to be arrested, go through a series of trials. Will be crucified on a cross, put into a grave. He will rise again, and then he's going to commission Peter to ministry, and that will conclude John's gospel. But this morning, John chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 18, will be our text this morning. And as we move into this chapter, Jesus has finished sharing with his disciples in that final night uh, with them before the cross. And we have looked at over um, the last several weeks this section of chapters 13 through 17, which of course has been named the Upper Room Discourse, uh, very carefully. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful time in, in this section of Scripture. And Jesus is, as we have seen, teaching and sharing with the 11 disciples that have remained. Now remember that earlier in the evening that Judas the betrayer has left to do his evil act of betraying Jesus and left with Jesus in that upper room was the 11 that belonged to him, and he shares with them about many things as we have seen. So before we get into chapter 18, let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. I thank you for this wonderful time of, of worship that we've had this morning. And, and I pray that it's prepared our hearts now to be like fertile soil to receive the word of God. This really is holy ground that we are on, seeing Jesus make his way to the garden where he's going to be arrested and, and then begin to take on the cup of suffering and death for us. So, Lord, we're familiar with these stories, but, Lord, I pray that it would impact our hearts and touch our hearts in a very deep and meaningful way to a greater degree. And that we would just leave this place at awe of all the wonderful, glorious things that has been provided for us through the cross at Calvary. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So even though Jesus is sharing with his disciples, has been on this last night that he is with them, uh, the disciples don't fully understand everything at this moment. The Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would come to them is going to give them understanding of these things that Jesus has been teaching them and what he's about to do in making atonement for their sins. And all they really understand now is that there's sorrow that's in their heart. But as they have that sorrow, Jesus said it will be turned into joy. Jesus talking to them about leaving them. He has explained to them about his death that is about ready to take place shortly. But that their sorrow, uh, as they will realize, as I mentioned to you, as they will see that uh, three days later he's going to rise from the grave and that the tomb is empty, will be turned into joy, uh, and he's going to ascend back to his father. So we ended the discourse, of course, in chapter 17 last week with Jesus' prayer to the Father. As he prayed for these disciples, he would also pray for future believers that would come into the kingdom by the word, the truth, the gospel that would be given out. And so now Jesus making his way, it's night, across the ancient city of Jerusalem. He would pass by the temple proper. He would stop along the way, and he gave that prayer that we read and studied over the last three weeks in chapter 17. So now let's pick it up in chapter 18, verse 1. We read that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So leaving the city of Jerusalem, Jesus would pass through 
the eastern gate uh, towards uh, what is called the Mount of Olives. And he would walk out of the Temple Mount area. He would cross uh, that little valley that is there between the temple and where the Mount of Olives was. It was a valley that was called the Valley of Kidron, just east of the city. And it's on um, the garden, the, on the side of what is called the Mount of Olives. And the Kidron Valley there, it's a small valley. It starts just north of Jerusalem, comes through, as I mentioned, between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane was. And it continues for another 20 miles and turns southward and eastward towards the Dead Sea. And it's called the Kidron because that word Kidron means gloomy when you look it up, uh, murky, dark. We know from historical references that at the time of Jesus that the brook would have water that would flow through uh, the valley there in the springtime. And the reason that they called it the Kidron, dark and murky, is because remember, this is Passover. So the city has all these pilgrims coming in to celebrate the Feast of Passover, and they would bring their sacrifices. And I've made reference to this, but sometime after this Passover, the historian Josephus writes about the time where the Romans wanted to take a census of how many people were coming into the city during this particular feast. And the reason that they wanted to take a census is because they were, you know, wanting to plan for security to make sure they had enough soldiers there in Jerusalem in case there was some kind of uprising, some kind of insurrection with all these people in Jerusalem. They wanted to make sure that they were prepared. And how many people are we dealing with that's coming in to celebrate the feast? And so the religious leaders, when the Romans wanted to take a census, the, the religious leaders of Israel asked the Romans not to directly count the people because what had happened a thousand years previously, as you read at the end of 2 Samuel, what happened when David directly counted the people? You, you know, as, as uh, we read that account, that there was a great punishment that was afflicted upon the nation because David counted the people to see how strong they were. In other words, there was pride. Uh, we're strong because of all these people rather than looking at the Lord to be their strength. So, hey, please don't count us directly. But what we will do, Rome, is that we will provide a number of sacrifices that will give you a really good idea of how many people are coming into Jerusalem during this feast. And Josephus records that in the counting of the sheep that were sacrificed at that particular Passover soon after this, about 20 years after this particular Passover, it would be about 256,000 sheep. Now that's a lot of sheep. And so with a sheep being sacrificed for a family, there were certainly a, a million people in the city or probably more during Passover. So a lot of people coming in to celebrate this feast. And the blood that was produced from the sacrifices of all those tens of thousands of sheep, the blood would actually flow as so they would wash it off from the Temple Mount area into that brook. And the water mixed, you know, with the blood there in the valley. It would be murky. It, it would be gloomy. It would be dark. And so they called it the Kidron, the water mixed with the blood of the sacrifices flowing through this valley. And I just wonder what Jesus thought as he stepped over that brook, headed to the garden. 
And he saw the blood and the water mingled together. Because in a few short hours from this time that he steps over the creek, the brook Kedron, blood mixed with the water flowing down that, you know, that valley, it's going to be a few hours that there's going to be blood mixed with water that's going to flow from his side. When the Roman soldiers thrust that spear into his side as he is pinned to that cross. And just as the blood and water flowed from the sacrificial lambs at Passover, it would be true for our Passover lamb of God. And Jesus crossed over that brook as we read. And I wonder if he would be reminded of David, who centuries previously, he is mentioned as crossing over that same brook, the Kidron, when he had this rebellion that was launched against him. A lot of you know the story. Second Samuel chapter 15 tells us about his son Absalom who rebelled against his father and and the hearts of the people were turned towards Absalom and they were against David. They rejected David and in a few hours they're going to be crying out to the one who is known as the son of David, Jesus. They're going to be crying out, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. And so as he crossed over that brook, he would then begin to make his way up the hill to a garden called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane means oil press. It was a place where there were lots of olive trees. And if you're ever upstairs in the office areas, we actually got a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. You can go there today. And you can see the big olive trees. And they will tell you that some of those olive trees that are there in the Garden of Gethsemane today are nearly 2,000 years old. So it's, it's there, a very beautiful place, a very quiet place in, in a very busy city. And it's interesting that once again, as we read this, that a garden and trees would play a role in the eternal status of man. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? Well, think about this. The first man, Adam, there in the book of Genesis, he was in a garden, wasn't he? The Garden of Eden. And he would eat of a tree, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He rebelled. He sinned against God. Now, Jesus is called by Paul the last Adam, as we read there in the book of Romans. And here is Jesus. He's in the garden, Gethsemane, where there's the olive trees, the olive press, where he's going to be obedient to the Father. He's going to be pressed. He's going to be crushed as he's going to give that prayer to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. In the first garden, Adam would hide from God. In this garden, the last Adam, Jesus, will cry it to pray to God. In the first Adam uh, garden, that is, Adam was driven out because of his sin. And death and sin would enter into the world, as Romans 5 tells us. Now the last Adam, Jesus Christ, comes into this garden and prepares to die for the sins of the world. The first garden, there was an angel with a flaming sword to keep man out. In this garden, Jesus will tell Peter, put away the sword, for I must go to Calvary for you to come into the presence of the Father. So interesting parallels that we can consider there. And we continue in our text in verse 2. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. We already know that Judas uh, would be Jesus' betrayer. And I find it interesting that Judas knows where Jesus is going to be in this hour of trouble. He knows Jesus is going to be at that place of prayer. Judas knew 
that it was a place that Jesus would go to often. He would take his disciples there. And Jesus, as he is indeed headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, that we know from the synoptic gospels that Jesus definitely was there. He was praying to the Father. He was sweating great drops of blood in, in his crying out to the Father, in his prayer to the Father, and, and praying, Father, uh, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But here's something that we can consider as, as we think about this. Do people know where you are going to be in a time of difficulty, in a time where it's difficult days? Are you going to be in a place, do people know that you're going to be in a place where you're going to be seeking the Lord? That, hey, I know that they're going to be in church or they're going to be with those brothers and sisters, you know, uh, uh, that group that they meet with, that Bible study. And, and I know because that's what he constantly does. That's what she constantly does. Do people know where you and I are going to be? That we're in a place where we are receiving just as you are doing that this morning? Or do people know that you're going to be somewhere else? I pray that they don't. Maybe at the lounge, you know, taking down a few belts of drinks because you're in a difficult place or hard, had a hard day. And my hope is this, that we would be in a place of prayer, of seeking the Lord, that people would know that that man, that woman, that Christian brother or sister, that they're going to be in a place where they're going to be receiving from the Lord with this group of believers. They're at church. And so here is... Judas, he knows where Jesus is going to be. He's going to be with his disciples at the garden. That's where he would go frequently to pray. So Judas goes there to betray. And I think that one of the hardest things that any of us will ever deal with is betrayal. But unfortunately, it can be a reality of life. To be betrayed by a spouse, by a family member, by a coworker, by a friend, to be betrayed by one in ministry. It can be a very, very difficult thing. And we know from the other Gospels that Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. Now we know that there are only two times in the Gospel narratives where Jesus was kissed by another. One by Judas, his betrayer, and at another time in Luke chapter 7, by a woman whose name is not given. She would come to Jesus up there in the Galilee region. And in her worship and devotion and her love for Jesus, she would weep over his feet and kiss his feet, washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Now when Judas gave Jesus a kiss, it was to identify him to the soldiers who would then arrest him. And the, betrayer, the betrayal of it, um, the hypocrisy of that kiss was so evident because that was the way that a student would greet his teacher, his rabbi, in a show of and, and sign of respect and admiration and faithfulness and eagerness to learn from their rabbi, from their teacher, the one that they respected and looked up to, their spiritual leader. And he betrays Jesus with a kiss. In verse 3, we read, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So here comes Judas with a detachment of troops to the garden. 
a detachment, or if you have a King James, I believe it reads a cohort of troops, which is a tenth of a legion. Now, legion is 6,000 troops. So here's a tenth of that. That would be 600 soldiers along with officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. They have their lanterns, torches. They have weapons. And what a sight that must have been as they're on the side of the Mount of Olives and to see them coming across. Now, the disciples are sleeping, but Jesus would see that line of soldiers, you know, coming from Jerusalem with the torches all lined up, hundreds of them coming into the garden to arrest Jesus. And, and why they needed so many men or thought they needed so many men to come and arrest Jesus, we're not sure. It doesn't tell us. Perhaps the religious leaders are thinking just a few days previous that there was this big crowd that was crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in the triumphal entry of Jesus. So maybe they're thinking that there's, you know, this following of Jesus and all these people are there in the garden hiding behind the trees and the bushes and it's an ambush so we got to be ready for it. We got to have weapons. We got to have over 600 men coming and be ready in case, you know, they resist against us. But the number really didn't matter how many would come to take Jesus. They could have brought just a couple guys. Because he's going to go willingly to the cross. He's going to go freely. They could have caught, brought a million-man army against Jesus. If Jesus didn't want to go, he could have defeated them. He could have done away with them, simply speak. So here are all these soldiers coming, and we read Jesus, Therefore, in verse 4, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So these guys come with all their power and force, and it's a very tense moment. Again, we know that the other Gospels recorded that the disciples were sleeping. And all of a sudden, they, they awakened. And there's all these guys, you know, upon them with their weapons and tortures and, and torches and, and ropes to bind Jesus up and perhaps ropes to bind the disciples up. I don't know. But these guys mean business. And it must have been a very, very frightful thing for them to see that and, and to have these guys come upon them. But notice that Jesus, he steps forward. He meets this large contingency and he says, Who are you seeking? He's in absolute control of this whole situation. He is not caught off guard. He's not confused on what's going on. He is not overwhelmed with all these men. The whole garden there, which isn't a huge garden, you know, would be filled with these soldiers. And instead of it being a tense moment for Jesus, it ends up being a tense moment for these soldiers and officers and religious leaders because notice... Who are you looking for? And I'm sure Jesus said that in a very calm voice. Well, Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm sure that the answer came with a, a strong voice of one of them, a commanding voice. Well, I am he. And they end up all falling backwards to the ground. And what a sight that that must have been. When Jesus responded to these soldiers, I am he. He was declaring who he was. 
You're not just coming and arresting a carpenter, Jesus from Nazareth, but you are coming to arrest the one who is the I am. I am God in human flesh. And in this, I think that Jesus was letting them know that, hey guys, I'm letting you take me and bound me up and lead me away to put me on trial because this is the Father's will. It's a humble display of his power because he could have called angels to wipe them out. We know that he could have called down fire from heaven like Elijah did. Remembered in the story of 2 Kings chapter 1, Azariah, the the king, sends these soldiers to arrest Elijah. He's up on a hill, and and the captain comes with 50 men to arrest him and get down here, Elijah, and you're going to come with us to the king. And Elijah said, if I'm a prophet of God, may fire come down on you. And all of a sudden, fire came down on those guys, consumed them, happened twice. The third round of guys that came, they were very polite and said, please don't burn us up. But Jesus could have called down fire from heaven very easily. And it is interesting that God's majesty would be shown in the midst of Jesus' humility. You see, Jesus was born as the humble babe of Bethlehem, laid in a manger. Yet his birth was announced by an incredible, awesome heavenly host. He slept in the boat when he was exhausted Then he awoke to calm the sea. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus, and then he would raise him from the dead. He submits to the arresting troops, then he declares his majesty and knocks them over. He will die and suffer on the cross, and then he will rise from the grave. And so as these guys are picking themselves up, what a sight that must have been when they all fell over, picking up their weapons, you know, and torches and putting their helmets back on and wiping the dust off themselves. And as they're doing that, then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 8, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. I think that when they did answer Jesus once again, they said Jesus of Nazareth, that they probably said it with a you know, little bit of hesitation, bracing themselves, you know, a little bit more humility, voices perhaps quivering, I don't know. But I told you, Jesus responds, I am he. I'm going to let you guys take me willingly but let these men go. I'm going to go to the cross alone. Jesus not only died for them, but he also died instead of them. Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for his sheep. And he keeps his sheep like he said he would. And then Simon Peter, you got to love this guy. Verse 10, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? When you read this, Simon Peter having a sword, I I wonder, you know, again, as it tells us that these guys were asleep in the synoptic gospels. And all of a sudden, Jesus, you know, was watching over them. He's watching the soldiers come in. They come in 
And these guys wake up and they're drowsy and, and you know, surprised and, and kind of like if you're waking up by a loud noise at night or something like that, a thunderstorm or something else going on. You're, you're kind of confused and, and Peter reacts uh, as he pulls out this sword and he's going to start swinging it. And I just wonder what Jesus thought. I wonder what the other disciples thought. When Peter pulls out this sword, they're thinking, oh, no, this isn't good. This isn't good at all uh, as Peter begins to react in that way. Now, remember that it was in that upper room just a few hours before this that G it was Peter that said to Jesus, I won't run away. I'm not going to, to scatter. I'm going to stand by you. I will die if I have to. These other guys may run away, but not me. And in his own confidence and in his own you know, flesh, he's saying, Lord, I'm going to stand by you. I'll lay down my life for you. And I think he's trying to keep that commitment, and he starts swinging this sword. And so something bad's going to happen, of course. It's like a kid that has matches. And Peter, as he does this, he gets an ear. And he cuts Malchus, the servant of the high priest, ear off. I, I think perhaps that Peter was probably perhaps going for his head and got an ear. Not a very good swordsman. Probably a better fisherman than a swordsman. But one commentator said this that it was thoughtless for Peter to try to prove his faith by the sword while he could not do it with his tongue. You know, sometimes we try to be so brave for the Lord and, Lord, I'll you know, stand for you, I'll take the hits, I'll take the persecution, uh, I'll do that. But what can happen is, is that we're not really living for Him. You see, it's very important that we live for Him to declare our devotion to him and our commitment to him and yes in our flesh we can try to you know be so strong and so committed and I believe that's what Peter is doing here I think that he he loves the Lord he he's trying to be brave but he's doing it all all out of his fleshly tendencies and his own strength rather than having the strength of the Lord so here is Peter he reacts in this way gets an ear and, and uh, putting this story together with the other Gospels, that it gives us some insight. We know that, first of all, that Jesus would pick up Malchus' ear and put it back on him and heal him. Pretty incredible miracle. Matter of fact, I think that's probably, uh, if I'm correct, the last miracle that we see Jesus does before he goes to the cross. And if Jesus had not had done that, then Peter would have been arrested on the spot, I believe. He would have been in big trouble. Uh, he, you know, could go through some very serious consequences uh, uh, by the Romans by doing this, by committing this act. So we know that Jesus would heal Malchus's ear, and we also know that Jesus told Peter when he was swinging that sword that Peter put away the sword, don't you know that I can call down 12 legions of angels? Jesus could have done that. Jesus, all he had to do, as I've mentioned to you, is speak, and 144,000 angels could have come down and destroyed those soldiers, destroyed the whole city of Jerusalem. I mean, could have destroyed the whole world. But Jesus wasn't going to do that. And the reason that he wasn't going to do that is because of you and me and his love for us. He's going to go to the cross. He says, Peter, that don't you know that I'm going to drink of the cup which the Father has given me? 
And he's speaking about the cup of suffering, of, of suffering and death. Because I want to save the world, not destroy the world. So verse 12, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So they bound Jesus up, you know, in the garden, probably with ropes, uh, but it really wasn't the ropes that would bound him up. He was bound for his love for you and for me. And they would lead him back over the brook Kedron to the home of Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas and Annas, that's mentioned here, sometimes there's confusion. So I, I want to kind of make it clear what's going on here. That Caiaphas is the official high priest right now. And what happened when Rome took over Israel, when Rome came and occupied uh, Israel in, in the known world, that they didn't want the Jews, you know, to... Um, you know, think that they can still be in control by having a high priest that is in office. And in the Old Testament, the high priest would be in office for a lifetime until they died, and then a new high priest would take over. Rome comes along and says, nope, we're not going to let you do that. We don't want a high priest that's going to get too much power. We want a high priest that's going to work with us, appease us. We're going to give it to the highest bidder, and we're going to only allow them to be the high priest for a, a number of years, and then we're going to have them step down. That was Rome's way of saying that we're ruling over you guys sovereignly. We're the ones that are making the decisions. So it was Annas that would actually get the selling of the oxen and the sheep really going to where it was quite a business for him. And you recall that in John chapter 2, in the first year of Jesus' ministry, that he rebuked the religious leaders. There was two cleansings of the temple. In his first year of his ministry, and then also right here at the end of his life uh, as he cleansed the temple once again after his triumphal entry. And in doing that, he rebuked Annas, and he rebuked the religious leaders. Annas was making a killing of the selling of oxen and sheep. We, we've gone over that uh, quite extensively as we went over that text. So here they are making a killing. They're ripping the people off. Jesus comes in twice in his ministry, rebukes the religious leaders. Now, Annas was the high priest, the official high priest, from 6 to 15 A.D. And after that, the Romans came along and said, you can't be the high priest anymore. But what Annas did is he would work with Rome to where he would pay them off to where all five of his sons would become the high priest following him. The people of Israel, the Jews that is, they really considered Annas to be the power behind the high priestly office. To them, he was still the high priest. To Rome, Caiaphas was the official high priest, the son-in-law of Caiaphas at this time that Jesus is crucified. So that's what was going on. And his son Caiaphas was also the one that shared in with the riches that uh, that was going on in the selling of the sheep and oxen during Passover. He's the one that would say, as you might recall, in John chapter 11, verse 50, that Jesus needs to die. It's expedient that he dies for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, at that time, Caiaphas said that, and that was right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Caiaphas didn't know that he was prophesying that Jesus would die for the people. 
He would die for the nation. He would die for the world. That they would be saved, those who would believe on him. You see, Caiaphas said it because he was afraid that the Romans would pounce on them if Jesus got this following after he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus is bound. He's brought to the house of Caiaphas. And Simon Peter, verse 15, followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus uh, into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So the disciples, what they would do is they would all take off. And and we know from the synoptic gospels that they would scatter. They would run away, exactly what Jesus said. Jesus had said to them on, you know, his last night with them, that you're all going to be made to run away and scatter because of me this night. And even though they pledged their allegiance and their commitment to him, they would all run away. And even Peter at this time, he runs away as well. After Jesus tells them, put your your, uh, sword into the sheep, put it away. And so Peter would then, he would just follow from a short distance, this detachment of troops. He's, He's following from afar. And, and this detachment of troops would bring Jesus to the home of the high priest, which was actually illegal. They were not to have a, 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 a trial at the home of the high priest and at night, but they do that anyway. So Peter would be in another disciple who isn't named here, but is widely believed by scholars that this would be John. John was the only one that was at the cross And John was probably the one that knew the high priest, knew the religious leaders. And the reason that scholars and historians believe that is because John and James, brothers, they were fishermen up at the Sea of Galilee, just as Peter and Andrew were. But James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee had servants. So it's believed that it is John's family, his dad, that had quite a fishing industry and business that was going on. So tradition says that what uh, Zebedee would do is that he would bring his sons and his servants and they would bring fish from the Sea of Galilee up to Jerusalem. And they would sell fish there in Jerusalem. They had a fish stand. And matter of fact, if you go to Israel today, you'll have some that will come up to you and say, hey, we'll show you where Zebedee's fish stand used to be if you pay us, you know, $20, $20, whatever, and, and if you're ever in Jerusalem, that happens, don't pay them $20, because nobody knows where exactly it was. It's like, were you here 2,000 years ago? Are you sure about this? Was, you know, there something that was left there to, 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 to know for sure? But, but probably Zebedee had a fish stand, and he would sell personally to the religious leaders. So this is the disciple John, who is believed that is here, and he's there. And he has access, he knows the religious leaders, and he brings, he's able to bring Peter into the, the courtyard. And he's in a unique position to talk to the girl that is there at the gate and, and to say, hey, he's with me, come into the courtyard. So all this has taken place <clears throat> at this time. So Peter, Peter would be brought in, John is there, Peter is still trying to Keep strong and brave. He's full of contradiction at this time. He's bold with a sword in his hand. But we're going to see that he's a coward before a servant girl. 
Paul, when he was finishing up his letter to 1 Corinthians, he would say in chapter 16, verse 13, it's a verse that many of you know, that you're to watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. And as I mentioned to you, that you and I, that we can't do those things if we're trying to do it out of the flesh. You know, the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, is what Jesus said to these disciples here in the garden as he wanted them to pray. Pray lest you fall into temptation, but they would fall asleep. And Peter's trying to be brave in his own flesh and he can't do this. And he's going to fail the Lord. And he's going to end up denying the Lord. In verse 17, the servant girl who kept the doors, we see his first denial, said to Peter, Are you not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And I just imagine Peter. He said that with a fisherman's tone, just a harsh tone. No, I'm not. And we know later on he would end up cursing and swearing, wouldn't he? Now the servants, as we read in verse 18, and the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So Jesus said to Peter that you will deny me three times. So this is the first time. Later in the chapter, we're going to see that Peter denied the Lord two more times uh, as the rooster then would crow. Now here's the thing that we never really sometimes talk about or consider when we go through this text because so much of the focus is on Peter denying the Lord, isn't it? And, and we need to look at that. Peter trying to be brave, trying to be strong and what it was that made him fail. And we'll discuss more about that next time as we'll see that two more times that he's going to deny the Lord. And we can learn from this. We can learn from Peter. We can learn about God's grace and his forgiveness and certainly we'll talk about it when we get to the end of John's gospel when Jesus commissions him to ministry because Peter thinks that he sinned away the day of grace when he denies the Lord and he hears the rooster crow and they open up the doors of Caiaphas house and there's Jesus already black and blue and beaten by the religious leaders looking at Peter Peter wept he 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 thought that he had severed his relationship with the Lord forever but God in, in his grace and forgiveness, it, it would be Peter that would receive that. But here's something I want to consider as we close here today. Here's something that we never think about. What about John? What about John? He really is in as much danger at this time as Peter is. But he doesn't deny the Lord. He isn't swearing. He isn't cursing. He isn't full of contradiction. Why? I want to leave you with this. Because John was the one that in this night, last night with Jesus, in that upper room, wasn't he the one that had laid his head against Jesus' chest? Was hearing the heartbeat of deity. John is the one that just was a worshiper and devoted to the Lord and, and heard the heart of God. He's the one that's going to be at the cross watching Jesus. All the others have run away. The way for you and I to be brave and to be strong is that, Lord, I want to know your heart. I just want to be in that place of devotion and rest and just at your feet. And, Lord, I always want to look to the cross, your incredible love for me, the grace that, that I have experienced and received, forgiveness, 
relationship with you because of what you did on Calvary's cross. That's what's going to keep you close to the Lord and devoted to the Lord. So, Lord, we thank you. Uh, as there's so much to talk about in these, in these verses, and we thank you that Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. We thank you for his love. We thank you, Lord, for um, Lord, his shed blood, that we have a living hope that comes through Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so, Lord, we thank you for, for this morning and looking at all this. It's more than just a historical account, Lord. It's, it's our eternal salvation that has been provided for. So, Lord, may we always be ones that we want to be at your feet, knowing your heart, just knowing you and looking to the cross because you demonstrate your love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, Father, I just want to pray if there's anyone that's here this morning listening to this message that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. Jesus took on the cup of suffering and death for you. He went to the cross for you. Because sin and death entered into the world through Adam. And sin has separated us from God. And the wages of sin is death. And Father, I pray, if there's anyone here that you've never come into a personal relationship with Jesus, that it comes by faith in him and knowing who he is and what he has done for you. To come and recognize that you're a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus. And you can pray right where you're sitting, Jesus, I come. I, I want to be right with you. I want to have a, a personal relationship with you and be forgiven. I believe that you are the Son of God who died for my sins. I am a sinner. I confess it. And that you died for me. And that you were put in a grave and you rose again. And I pray and ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. That you would sit upon the throne of my heart. My life is not its own anymore. I'm surrendered to you. And thank you for dying for me. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. And if anybody prayed that prayer after the service, I want you to come up and pray with Jim. And he wants to just minister to you and give you some things that will help you in your walk. So, Lord, now as we close this service, I pray that you would just bless everyone here as we go your way. May we just walk in your love this week, be filled with your spirit. And Lord, just be empowered by you to be devoted to you, be a witness for you, and a light to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?